0: Warriors Tanse Sego Anibuju Que Ninda Louise Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits. While at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty, our lands and waters and peoples all over Turtle Island. And that's why today we are so lucky to have one real grassroots warrior with us today. Her name is Molly Wickham. And for those of you who don't know her yet, I mean, I'm going to let her introduce herself the way she likes to introduce herself. But she has been the spokesperson in her territory for a group of land defenders who are trying to protect their lands and territories from devastating extraction and development. And they have been under constant threat from both the extractive companies and law enforcement. And we're just so fortunate for her to take some time to come into town and talk to us and let us know what's going on so that we can be a help to her. So thank you so much for being with us, Molly.
1: Thank you for having me. I,
0: I really appreciate it. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself uh, in the way that you like to. Of course.
1: i den hasley What's ten is um to Spin I'm Molly Wickham and my uh, my chief name is Slado. And I belong to the Gidimden clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation and I sit in the
0: Cassia house which is the Grizzly Bear house. And and that's all located in what region of what's now known as BC. It's uh northwestern uh, oh, okay. Yeah.
1: It, so we're about four and a half hours of away from the
0: coast, the north coast of BC. Okay. Okay. So you have come into town tonight because uh, to, to come and do this podcast as well as other things. But where were you previously? So I just came in from, from our camp out at 44 kilometer
1: out um, in behind a town, a small town called Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about two hours away from Smithers, about an hour away from a, the small little town on the Highway of Tears, uh, Highway 16, um, that runs through the north of so-called BC. And we're about uh, an hour out on the logging road. Um is, which is where our campus, right at the at the beginning of one of our territories called Lutispen. and uh, that's a Cassia House territory that we've been occupying um, myself, my and my family since 2012. But more recently, um, and probably what people are more familiar with is the last uh, for the last. Almost year now since last December, we've been occupying our territory at Ludisbin on um, forty-four kilometer at the Gidimden
0: checkpoint. So, what what is the Gidimden checkpoint? <laughs> um, it's a it's right at the
1: right at the beginning of one of our territories, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a camp that we've established there, and it's actually on an old village site, and so. We're right on a creek that in the English name is called Lamprey Creek, and it used to be full of lamprey eels. And so, all of the Wet'suwet'en people, not just Get'em Den, but all of the clans, we have five clans within our nation, would come and um, harvest lampreys here. And so, it's an old home site for many Wet'suwet'en people. And so, we've reoccupied this space. Um, as a checkpoint to monitor the territory, to um, defend the territory against industrial projects like coastal gas link pipeline project that's currently um, trying to force their way through our territories.
0: Okay, so now for, for the people that aren't familiar with the different like BC territories and nations, this is part of the larger what's nation territory, right? That's right. We
1: have within our nation, within the Wet'suwet'en Nation, we have five clans and we have 13 house groups. And so within each clan, there's different family groups, which we call house groups, because we all used to live in the same um, big house, in the same house. Um, And so we organize our territories according to our clan system of governance. And our territories, we have 38 distinct house group territories throughout 22,000 square kilometers of territory that ranges in between what's now known as Burns Lake, B.C. to um, just past Witsett, B.C., the, the reserve community of Witsett and so 22,000 square kilometers is the number of territory or the amount of territory we have but each house is responsible for specific tracts of land within that and so that's what we're doing um as cassia house is that we're protecting our one of our main cassia house territories called Ludispin.
0: okay and so for people uh, might have heard of the name wetzotin before it um probably most familiar with the Supreme Court of Canada case and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right but is it Delgamook? That's right. Yeah and so um, for for our listeners benefit uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in 1997 had issued a decision um, which confirmed that aboriginal title does in fact exist basically confirming what we already knew it was like native territory Um, and so this is the the territory that you're talking about is all of this traditional territory and Aboriginal title territory right? That's right yeah oh, okay. all of
1: this territory was um, is documented and established in, within the Supreme Court. Um, there's testimony given about every place name, every tract, every house territory by different experts and chiefs within the nation throughout the Dalgamuch-Gastewi court case. Um, that, you know, that solidified in within this Western system that we've never extinguished title to our territory. So these are lands in dispute that, um, that we know that we govern. We've never stopped governing these lands, and we continue to do so. And that's exactly what the Getemden Checkpoint is about. That's exactly what the Unistoten Camp is about, their healing center, their occupation of their land and now one of the other clans and houses within the Laksamisu, um, also within the Wet'suwet'en Nation, they're also doing the same thing. And this is all comes back to our governance system, which is documented in detail in the Delgamuukw Kistewe court case, um, which has been recognized by the, by the courts mm-hmm. um, and by the governments, pro- the province and the federal government and yet still on the ground, we're seeing it oppressed, suppressed, and we're receiving, you know, the the fallout of RCMP um, and industry's control and power over our territories.
0: So, you know, you, you raised an issue here. So we talked about your traditional territory and the courts have recognized it. And even in the subsequent Chilcotin case, they talked you know what aboriginal title means and it means exclusive use occupancy benefit governance and um that was my qu- one of my questions to you was that is that what you know this access point is about is i mean it's clearly about like you said monitoring the territory and essentially that's a form of governance over that territory
1: yes that's right um we've always occupied our territory we've been really lucky at uh, at keeping our governance system intact Mm -hmm. so our clan governance system has been utilized consistently since the time of contact. We didn't ever stop utilizing our governance system. And so this is one of the main aspects of our governance and our self-determination is that we have the right and the responsibility to control access to our territory. You know, UNDRIPS come along and there's all these other things that are supposed to affirm that for us, but we don't, we've never needed that affirmation. Mm. We've just been always doing it. And so this is one way that um, the Unistoten have been doing it for the last 10 years. And and we've started to do the same thing um, in a more serious, controlled way um, for the past year. But it's about knowing who's coming into our territory. We have very strict trespass laws. We have very um, strict protocols around how to access territories that aren't ours. So even within our nation, we have our laws set down about how to access other clan territories. There's no, um, there's no free access to anybody. We don't just go into somebody else's clan territory and take what we want. Um, we sure wouldn't go into another nation's territory mm-hmm. and do what we want and take what we want. Um, And so we have that same responsibility to know and control who's coming into our territory.
0: Well, and and that's an important part of, you know, asserting, living and defending your sovereignty and your self-determination. It's it's an action. It's not just, um, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I have a right to be self-governing. But you actually have to be governing. That's right.
1: And that's something that we have... Um, as Wet'suwet'en, we, you know, we've recognized that as a very important way um, to live out our laws. So we have a constitution um, that's being drafted and developed that that codifies all of our traditional laws that strictly are Wet'suwet'en law, are Nak-no-ten. Um And so we have all of that intact. And we live it on a day-to-day basis. And the one thing that was missing for for years was like a really organized way of of implementing those laws, those territory access laws on the territories because the place where we're at, it's really remote. There's no homes out there other than our home and uh, Frida Houston's home and the healing center on Unistoten. So there's no, it's not a residential area. It's an area that's pretty much just bush and wilderness and wild animals. And, um, and so industry has taken a huge interest in that because they think that if nobody's there, nobody there's no control or there's no regulations over what they can and cannot do. So they think that they have free reign over that whole piece of territory, and a lot of that territory belongs to getem den
0: so you know for the for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us what is happening in your territory right now? what like uh, a lot of people might not be familiar with um uh coastal link uh, pipeline, so can you tell us what's happening? like what's the issue, and how did it develop? right so
1: it's actually goes back quite about 10 years since Unistoten started their, their checkpoint um, and they're controlling access to their territory, but we've been struggling against uh, pipeline companies that carry oil as well as uh, fracked gas, and they're, they're attempting to, to build all of this, these pipelines through one major energy corridor directly through the heart of our territory. And there's been many over the years. At one point, there were 13 proposed pipelines, one of which was the Enbridge pipeline. Um, There's another called Pacific Trails pipeline, which actually has in their community benefit agreements, a clause that says that they will wait five years before um, converting their LNG pipeline into an oil pipeline. Um, and that the nations who are signing these community benefit agreements are open to the idea of an energy corridor. And so we've known about this for a long time, and not one in the past 10 years has been able to push their way through our territory. We've fought every single one of them, Um, and we've been successful. And so this coastal gas link is, uh, is wholly owned by... A company called TC Energy, they used to be called TransCanada, and they changed their name the day after the raid happened in Gidimden territory on January 7th. And so they changed their name to TC Energy. And they're acting as a front runner, um, because once one pipeline goes through our territory, that will mitigate the environmental impact in the eyes of the government. Um, and in the eyes of community members, that's going to impact, or sorry, that's going to alleviate a lot of the pressures that they have to go, you know, face mm-hmm. environmentally and mitigate the, those impacts for having other pipelines come through the same way. So um, we know that this pipeline, specifically Coastal Gas Link, is. The one that's trying the hardest—they're pushing, they're using, they're pulling out um, every stop to make their way and be the first to push through, so that they, all of the other ones can follow.
0: So, where what's the situation right now? You've been successful in keeping all of the other pipelines out of your territory, um, and I saw a video uh, where. Uh, and it's called Invasion, and it was, I I believe you were the, you were one of the people in the video, and it was Coastal GasLink saying we have an injunction. So that, I mean, clearly they're using litigation. Where is that at right now? Right. So right now,
1: um, Coastal GasLink has a temporary injunction. Mm-hmm. And they got that temporary injunction last year in December. And then so when they enforced that injunction, that was how they were able to, to bring the RCMP in um, on January 7th to raid Gidimden Checkpoint. And so in order to get... They really were going after Unistoten, But in order to get to Unistoten, you have to pass through Gidimden territory.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: so... Um, and you still have to pass through Gitimden territory to, to get to Unistoten, And so that's why the conflict uh, mm-hmm. happened at Gitimden checkpoint, um, the major conflict with the RCMP. And so since that time, they've had an occupation of our Gitimden territory by the RCMP. They have a, um, they have a, a detachment, a SERG detachment. They call it Kerg. It's a community industry response group. And it's a special group of RCMP that are made up and specially trained from all over the province. And so they have officers from Vernon, Kelowna, Surrey, Burnaby, um, Vancouver Island, Haida Gwaii. They have officers from everywhere around the province that come and um, are specially trained to deal with mostly Indigenous people occupying their territories, resisting industry. That's their main goal. They have a <clears throat> detachment on our territory um, about 20 kilometers down the road from us, from our, from our camp, um, that's monitoring and surveilling us 24-7. They're manned 24-7 with about six or seven officers. And so since then, they've been patrolling... Every single day, harassing, surveilling everybody at camp, um, arresting people um, at the whim of Coastal GasLink. And, uh, and they've been going, and the company has gone for an interlocutory injunction. And so that case started in about June. And now they're, we're expecting that a decision might come down um time now. And so that's what we're preparing for right now, because one of the things that they've done since last year or since January was that they've applied for an amendment to the injunction to remove Gidemden checkpoint, to remove us from our territory. They've also applied for an amendment to the injunction to remove an Unistoten cabin that they've put out on the territory. And so they're going through the court system to try to remove us from our own lands and remove our camp at this historic, um, traditional site, uh, that we're not, they, they want RCMP enforcement to come and take us out of there.
0: It sounds like the RCMP is more like a private corporate security force, then actually they're supposed to be neutral enforcing all of the laws of Canada, including the constitutionally protected rights.
1: Oh, definitely. They've um, actually, a a perfect example happened just the other day, last week. um, One of the, there was a supporter up at Unistoten who uh, turned away at a, Coastal Gas Link subcontractor, group mm-hmm. sub, uh, trucking. And because they did that, the subcontractor called direct line to the CERG um, detachment on our territory. The RCMP, RCMP came and arrested the supporter, um, charged her with, uh, with violating the terms of the injunction, um, with a civil charge, so people they're charging people with these civil charges and arresting them and putting them in jail, and uh, and then once Coastal Gaslink called, they kept her, they detained her, they wouldn't tell us where she was. We didn't know if she was in Houston or Prince George or Smithers, any of the surrounding detachments. Um, finally, we found out where she was late that night and. Coastal GasLink had made a phone call to the RCMP detachment and told them to let her go. And so they released her. There was no charges. There was no violation of the court injunction. um, There was no conditions of her release. And that's how much control and power that this company has over the RCMP, is that they can make a call to have somebody arrested, and they can make a call to have somebody released. So the court injunction doesn't really you know it's not
0: it's, it's just not dressing being enacted. it's really just dressing it 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 yeah. it's it's almost superficial because with or without that injunction the RCMP clearly it sounds like in your territory but in many other territories like in my territory I mean when we were trying to stop the, you know, hydrofracking from contaminating waters in Mi'kmaq territory, they sent like 200 police officers and, you know, RCMP in SWAT gear and riot gear with snipers, you know, for all to, to do what? You know, it, it certainly wasn't to quell a rebellion or any kind of violence. These were all unarmed Mi'kmaq people, um, mostly women on the front lines and. But what they did was they surrounded the thumping trucks for the, high, you know, the hydrofracking company and escorted them in like they were paid security forces. Oh, definitely.
1: Yeah. I, I want to know who is, you know, who's funding this, these SERG teams. Because the amount of funds that it takes to man that detachment, a whole separate RCMP detachment that's larger than the RCMP detachment in the neighboring community where there is a whole town of residents. Like wow. I don't believe I don't believe for a second that you know that the government is necessarily just funding this. There's money other money coming from somewhere. And if so, how is that justified? you know in the Canadian taxpayer's eyes that they're they're paying? for these RCMP officers to be act
0: as private security for coastal gas link. And yeah. And we're talking about like, you know, if the RCMP, uh, you know, they're not supposed to be the private security forces of all of these extractive companies, nor are they supposed to be the private security forces of government either. They're actually supposed to uphold all of the laws in Canada, and you know, set aside the fact that they should also be hold, holding up Indigenous laws. I mean, you're talking about a competition between constitutionally protected rights and Canada's constitution, according to Canada's laws. It's supposed to trump all other Canadian laws uh, according to their system, yet none of the extractive companies, none of them in any of the territories in Canada have any constitutionally protected rights at all, like none. They have no right to drill or cut or extract. All they have are privileges issued to them by federal and provincial governments. So if the RHCMP had to look at that and say, hmm, I, I wonder which law applies here, there's there should be no doubt that it's the constitutionally protected laws over these, you know, uh, permits and licenses and leases, which are not constitutionally protected.
1: Yeah, I agree. And there's no... You know, there's no Western law being upheld in any way, shape, or form out on our territories these days. It's like the wild, wild west. You know, they can come in and they can do anything that they want to us. And there's no recourse. There's no um, backlash. They just, they know it. And the companies don't, they're not following any of their regulations. Um, You know, recently it came up for review under the bc oil and gas commission their their whole uh certificate their project certificate came up under review and i think they had um over a hundred documented reported violations of their permit requirements wow and there was absolutely no question whether or not their certificate was going to get extended. And so it's now extended until 2024. So they're not following any of their own protocols. The RCMP are not following any Western law. We're asserting Wet'suwet'en law. You know, we've used different measures in the courts to go through the Western system to try to assert our law within the Western system. Um, But there is no law being upheld in any way, shape or form, whether it's, um, you know, policies under the provincial government, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, UNDRIP, implementation of UNDRIP. Mm -hmm. BC is, you know, looking at um, adopting UNDRIP in principle as the first province in Canada. And yet everything on the ground happening to us that the province knows about Full well, we've done a lot of freedom of information, and we have evidence that the province has, you know, has meetings of all these different government officials about what to do with the Wet'suwet'en. Specifically, you know, gathering up all these all these provincial officials from all of these different ministries within the province of BC um, to try to suppress us and try to oppress us on our territories, while all the while you know, having news conferences and press releases about how they're implementing, one to going to be the first province to implement UNDRIB. And it just yeah. blows me away. I mean, I'm yeah. not surprised, but at the same time, uh, I don't understand how anybody who knows what's happening in our territory could for one second believe or think that the main goal of the provincial government in British Columbia with the RCMP is not is to oppress our people and to destroy our governance and destroy our territories they're literally having meetings with all their government officials on how to do that effectively and how That's to squash incredible. our resistance yeah our, I- our resistance is our governance mm-hmm. we're not protesters You know, we're not even, I wouldn't even say I'm a land defender. I'm a Wet'suwet'en person, a Gidimden mother, and who has responsibilities. And now I have a, you know, a hereditary chief name that gives me even more responsibilities. And we're literally living out our governance on our land. And that's what they're working hard and putting all these resources into, uh, suppressing.
0: Well, and see, that's, I mean, there's multiple problems here. So you've got BC, who has been getting a lot of attention for, like you said, being the first province to say, we're going to implement UNDRIP into law and UNDRIPS, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is supposed to protect Indigenous lands and territories and resources and self-governance and lawmaking and all of that stuff, uh, supposed to be you know incorporated into Canadian law including at the provincial level yet the vast majority of people have no idea what's going on behind the scenes so this is what they're saying in their legislature but behind the scenes someone's paying for the RCMP someone's paying for all of these policy decisions somebody is issuing all of these permits and allowing these companies to act and so you can't do both and be genuine
1: oh definitely and the provinces is, you know, they're they're saying they're taking a hands-off approach, that they're not getting involved, that, you know, like they're the ones under their own law that have the duty to consult yeah. with Indigenous nations, you know, get them done. When the injunction first came down, the company went after Frida Hewson, who's the spokesperson for Unistoten, and Werner Nazel, who is a hereditary chief in the Luxamisu clan, went after those two as individuals and tried to bypass our whole governance system and the fact that Unistoten Healing Center has been there as a project of the Unistoten clan, the house group in the clan, since the beginning. And when they went for the amendment to the injunction and when they went for this amendment to the injunction to remove Gitim Dan from their territory, they there was no notification to us. We weren't aware that any of this was happening. They just acted like we didn't exist. They continue to act like we just don't exist as an indigenous people
0: which is incredible you know not just from the fact of you know our history and your continued governance is what people but after the Supreme Court of Canada you know the Delgamuukw case and the Chokoten case and You know, I get questions all the time when I am, you know, teaching classes or speaking in the public about these cases. And, you know, people will say to me, well, what are you complaining about? You guys won those cases. Everything should be good. But they just have no idea that, you know, supposedly winning a case does not necessarily translate on the ground to any kind of respect of Native rights.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we've, we're, we're at the point where we have tried everything within the system
0: mm-hmm. that
1: we can. Um, we're certainly not relying on that system. We know mm-hmm. that it's not designed yeah. to benefit us. Um, we've never been under that false pretense that it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be helpful and useful to us. However, we've done it anyway mm-hmm. because, you know, we try to find every means possible to resolve a problem before we go to war. It's always been like that. You don't, you know, you always try to find the peaceful resolution and and that's what we've been doing. That's what we've been trying to do. Um, January 7th, anybody that watched... The videos, anybody that saw Mm -hmm. the photos and the images of that day saw how much violence was happening to us on our territory, how we were removed from our own territory um, and taken four and a half hours away to another city um, to be put into jail there. And so all of the violence and all of that's happening is at the hands of the RCMP and the government and this company. And we've been trying every possible way through all the legal means, um, looking at, you know, a judicial review of this project certificate. Um, we're, you know, we're launching some fundraising campaigns to help with all of the legal costs mm-hmm. for all of the different things. We're suing, in a civil case, CGL and their subcontractors, Domcor and BlastPro, for destroying our camp after the raid. They came in with you know, heavy machinery and dump trucks and tore down our whole camp once already. And they're planning to do it again, you know, and we're just fed up. We're at our limit. And, uh, you know, things are coming to a head again. You know, it's almost been a year and things are coming to a head again
0: where, um, you know, we can only be pushed so far. Well of course and and for BC to to act like it even has the ability to be hands off on this is just it it such it does such a disservice to Canadians you know it's it's propaganda at its best because i mean it's only federal or provincial governments that issue licenses leases and permits and authorizations to these companies and with all of those Uh, Things come legal duties, constitutional legal duties, you know, aside from even indigenous laws that also have to be met, but there's also constitutional legal duties with corresponding obligations and associated liabilities and it. They simply can't say, well, this has nothing to do with us because the courts have long settled, even under their own Canadian system, that it's not these extractive companies that, ha- that carry that duty like federal and provincial governments. So it just... Uh, The only thing I can think is that BC assumes that because most of this is happening in territory, which doesn't have like a 24 hour media stream and 24 hour cameras that the vast majority of people aren't going to know what's happening. Yes.
1: And that was definitely the case on January 7th. They, um, you know, they took down any of our, all of our contact. They took down the media um, the internet. They didn't let. They didn't allow media in um, to the territory. Like I said, we're an hour out on a logging road. We're isolated. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no. You know, we have satellite internet and phone, um, which they took that out right out. So we had no contact with the outside world whatsoever, um, other than the fact that we had media people in camp before the raid happened is the only way that we got the message out and that people were able to see those images. And, um, and they didn't expect that. They expected to come in with that, you know, with a huge TAC team, um, with ERT team, with snipers, like you were saying, all mm-hmm. the, they had attack dogs, they had everything. Um, and there were, you know, we had elders that were there. And we had um, young people and, you know, and they and we have children that are at our camp all the time. Like we live there. We, we have I have children. There's other other Wet'suwet'en people, other Wet'suwet'en children that are there. Um, and, and so they came heavily armed and didn't expect that anybody would ever know. And they don't expect that anybody's going to know exactly what they're doing out there, that there's going to be any backlash on them at all because we're so isolated. And so we've been having to work really hard at ensuring that we're getting the message out constantly and that we're updating people on what's going on. Um, But really, people don't really understand unless you come there and see Mm -hmm. what it's like to live there on a day-to-day basis, um, how much industry and RCMP are working together, and how much surveillance there is. You know, we have helicopters flying over our camp, you know, regularly to monitor, and drones um, keeping track of who's coming and who's going, and RCMP driving up and down the road, um, the only access point in and out. Um, constantly taking down license paper, papers, um, pulling people over, ticketing and fining people for ridiculous things, um, taking people's cars off the road. <laughs> what? <laughs> and the only people that this happens to are our people. You know, they're they're act they're preventing
0: us from accessing our own territory and And they're doing it because they feel like they can. They're emboldened by the remoteness. They're hoping that, um, you know, it it doesn't get out there, that it doesn't, you know, like what happened in January where people are protesting and, you know, calling on government to act. And i I mean, they probably hope that the remoteness and all of that will keep that from happening again. Um, Yeah. But it just sounds like you have an ongoing Oka scenario. You have like it's like nothing has changed. This is a daily thing. And for many people who don't know all the details and and I'm one of them, I don't know all the details. There's lots of people who think, oh, well, that was last January, but it's all resolved now and everything's okay. But, you know, it's very clear that it's not okay, and that the threat is actually increasing, not decreasing.
1: Yes, the threat is definitely increasing. Um, More just recently, we've had we've seen a huge increase in RCMP presence and surveillance. We've seen a huge increase in um, air support and the number of helicopters flying over. The number of RCMP officers coming into the territory. Um, Just recently, the head of the E division was, you know, the. Gold Commander was in the territory, asking to speak with our hereditary chiefs. Um, there's a lot of activity that's indicating that that um, something's going to happen again here pretty quick.
0: So now. What's the relationship? So you just referenced um your hereditary chiefs, and so you know the Wet'suwet'en Nation—they have their own laws and their own governance and their own syst- the clans and house systems and territories, all of that stuff. What's the relationship between this traditional governance and the um, Indian Act elected chiefs and councils? Well, it's
1: been a strained relationship. Um, okay. for the most part, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the Indian act Bank councils were put in place for a reason to mm-hmm. undermine our hereditary traditional governance systems. And they've done that. Um, the hereditary chiefs have always remained um, steadfast in their vision and their the fact that they are not willing to fight our own people. Mm-hmm. And so, in the sense that the Indian Act band chiefs are Wet'suwet'en people. Yep. They belong to a clan, they belong to a house. And so we've been trying to deal with those issues within our traditional governance system in our mm-hmm. traditional way. Um, however, they've also very strongly asserted that Indian Act bands do not have any authority on the 22,000 square kilometers of territory. They act as a um, as band counselor, like as chief counselors over the reserve. They're responsible for the function and the services of on-reserve land.
0: Mm-hmm. And the
1: hereditary chiefs are responsible for the whole rest of our territory. Um, and so they work together in a lot of ways. And then, but when it comes to, you know, Community benefit agreements and money that's going to go to the reserves, they've worn them down, you know, over many, many, many communities have signed on to this pipeline in particular. Most of those communities, they didn't do community consultation and what set band was the last one to sign on out of all the Wet'suwet'en communities. And they had two community referendums where they voted and they had community consultations to say, do you want this or do you not want this? Because they were being offered all these millions of dollars by this company. And yet they had a protocol agreement with the hereditary chiefs stating that they could not make any decisions on the traditional territories of the five clans. And so they had these two community votes, and both times the community voted no, we don't want this. None of the other communities that signed on, like none of the other reserves that signed on, had any community votes or community consultations. It was wow. just strictly the chief and council that made that decision. And so in the end, set ended up having a closed-door vote, where just, it was a blind vote, so nobody could see who voted yes and who voted no. And they voted to go ahead with the project. (sighs) And so when you look at, you know, that's one of Coastal GasLink's main arguments is that all the bands along the route have signed on. You know, a majority of them, not all of them, but a majority of them have. And we know that that's not representative of our people right that's not representative of the actual people that live in those communities
0: well so, and and in, in even in the court cases like um the Delgamuk uh case it wasn't brought by a chief and council it was, no, brought, it was by brought by the, the
1: 13 house chiefs the yeah. hereditary chiefs and so we've like and everybody knows our system you know I've, obviously there's some people that don't know our system but um you know for the most part people participate in our traditional governance system Mm -hmm. and it's just the ploy of the company and the government to try and divide us and make it look like we aren't unified make it look like we you know we just can't decide amongst ourselves and and that actually you know and this is one thing that's been put out there is that the that the chiefs are being the hereditary chiefs have always had this stance no, and we've confirmed it in our in our Bahlats, in our governance hall, in our like in our potlatch hall, um, over and over and over again. All the different clans and all the clans as a whole nation have confirmed this in our feast hall. It's law. It's in law that this cannot happen. And so, anybody that's going against that is breaking our law. Um, and so, it's a it's a major issue within our nation. And also, we recognize that that it's not it's not our problem alone. This mm-hmm. is a problem that's created and fueled by industry and government to try to. You know take control of our lands it's it's been the same goal for the last 500 years for you know our territory it's been about 150 years since we've you know been in had contact and uh you know permanent occupation of our territory so for us it hasn't really been that long but the objective has always remained the same and we see it and we see it very clearly and you know we're just so lucky that we still have our governance system intact on our territories and that we have enough territory that is intact left worth fighting for like we have with our river where they're planning all of the all of the proposed pipelines converge at one critical point and that's under our river the headwaters of our whole river system and that flows into the, it's the Bulkley river and that flows into the Skeena and that's the headwaters where all the salmon come. The major Pacific coho runs come um, and we drink out of that water. Like when you, if you come at, you know, if you ever come to one of our camps mm-hmm. you'll be drinking the water straight out of the river because that's how pristine it is and that's how clean it is. Wow. And that's what is at stake here for us.
0: So, I mean, the situation, you know, can can potentially get worse as the company keeps pushing and pushing and the RCMP keep pushing. If you if I guess in terms of what the solution is, if you had direct access to the prime minister of Canada or the BC premier, what would you say is the solution here?
1: I mean, the, the solution is that the government needs to acknowledge and respect our decision-making processes and our governance structure because that's what is in place and that is what they're fighting so hard against because that's that's our way of managing our territory. You know, we we don't have to come up with a whole new way to do that. Mm-hmm. We We already have one and that's what they're fighting us on. And so we need them to recognize and let us, you know, and to to allow us to do what we've been doing for thousands of years. You know, it's not in this day and age, you know, people think, oh, yeah, like <clears throat> indigenous culture is celebrated and indigenous mm. people are allowed to be who they are. Yeah. Well, we're not.
0: <laughs> no, we're
1: not allowed to be who we are. We're not allowed to exist as Wet'suwet'en. Because if we were allowed to exist as Wet'suwet'en, we wouldn't be thrown in jail. We wouldn't have sniper rifles pointed in our faces. We are literally not allowed to exist as Wet'suwet'en on our territory here. And that's what needs to happen. We need to be allowed to just be who we are on our territory, according to our own laws and ways of life.
0: Yeah, and and that includes deciding who enters your territory for what purposes and who benefits from what's in your territory, including being able to say no to coastal gas or any other industry. That's right. And, you know, I've said right from the beginning of, of
1: the whole discussion around UNDRIP and the implementation of UNDRIP is that, you know, I said, nobody can, the government's having, you know, these big discussions and, about, okay, well, how, what does the implementation of UNDRIP look like? And that's not their job. The implementation of UNDRIP is up to us as Wet'suwet'en to determine how does mm-hmm. that look according to our law in our territory. And yeah, that means that it's going to be a really big job for every nation to determine what the implementation of UNDRIP looks like in their own territory according to their law. But I think we can safely say that history has proven over and over and over again that the cookie-cutter pan-Indian approach does not work. No, (laughs) pan-average why do you keep trying to do that? (laughs) It doesn't work. No. So, you know, it's just an easy out for government to, to try to implement something like that. but. You know, for us, that's what it looks like. Our free prior informed consent means that we, you know, that people have to ask permission to enter into our clan territory. They have to say what, they, what their intentions are. They have to say what, how long they're planning on staying. And then we have the right to approve or to deny them access. And if they trespass, then we have consequences for trespassing.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's, that's the point that gets left out of the conversation. And I find even some native organizations try to tone it down. But free, prior and informed consent includes the right to say no. And, you know, some native organizations are like, oh, no, 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 you know, it's about getting to a, you know, mutually beneficial agreement, but that's not the case. Like, to, to get someone's consent means they have the right to say yes or they have the right to say no or anything in between. Yes with a whole bunch of conditions or no with conditions. Like, a- and we can't just make consent about y- you have an obligation to say yes at some point.
1: Yes, that's right. I know mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, our laws are very clear about accessing territory. And, yeah. If you if you're not allowed to come onto the territory and you're told no and you do it anyway, then there's severe penalties for that. And you know we're not the the hereditary chiefs have said over and over and they're not changing their stance. They haven't for the last ten years. They're not going to anytime soon. The answer is no. Under no circumstances are there going to be any pipelines through Wet'suwet'en it so territory.
0: Good. And so, what can Canadians do to help you? What can Canadians do to support you in this? Well, I have a good
1: example of something that's gone on recently so there's mm-hmm. a man camp that's proposed in Gitamden territory um and we've been fighting these man camps you know the whole time mm-hmm. we've been writing reports we've been submitting things to the environmental assessment office you know we've included the you know the recommendations from the inquiry um we've made this huge deal about the fact that our our we live on you know highway 16 the highway of yeah. tears where our women are going being murdered and going missing all the time. In fact, a woman just went missing the other week from Houston, who was just out on the road walking and disappeared without a trace. And that's it. Nobody's ever heard anything about it again. Um, And so we've been making all of these, you know, these arguments about why we don't want man camps in our territory and Mm -hmm. why they can't be there. And, but this one, um, private property, non-Witswood and non-Indigenous woman made a complaint to the regional district that her children go on the bus to school into Houston every day. And all of the traffic that, um, that has increased since they've started pushing their way through since the enforcement of the injunction and everything is putting her children at risk. And The regional district pulled the permit for the man camp. What? And I was so pissed off, so pissed off and, and happy that the permit got pulled, (laughs) but so livid that I woke up every day for days and went to sleep every day for days, just livid, so angry because her children were important. You know, yeah. all of the arguments that we made, my children weren't considered, my children weren't, their safety was not an issue when heavily armed RCMP were raiding our camp, um, let alone my, the safety of my children on the road. You know, they pulled that yeah. permit in a second And, you know, it was, it just dawned on me. We're doing all of this work. And yes, we want people to get behind us because indigenous governance is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Supporting our governance and supporting our struggle is what we want Canadians to do. And it's not enough just to do that. Yeah. You know, like it's not enough to say, I support you. Good work. I love what you're doing. Yeah, pat, a pat, pat on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you doing? You know, what are Canadians doing? And I know that there's so many people that are going way above and beyond. Like, what are they willing to accept in terms of this country that they, you know, if they consider themselves Canadian citizens, that this, their government, their system of law, what are they willing to accept? And what are they gonna do about it? And how far are they willing to go to actually put a stop to what's happening? Not only to the destruction of the environment and the pristine waters and the salmon and mm-hmm. you know, climate catastrophe that's happening in the world, but what are they willing to do about the injustice and the RCMP and the oppression of indigenous laws and people as well? You know, like people need to hear, well, how does it impact them? You know, that non-Indigenous woman, she stood up and she was like, hey, this is going to impact me. And this is how. And that mattered to that yeah. level of government.
0: And, and imagine if every other Canadian mother or family would experience the exact same kind of harassment and surveillance and monitoring and arrests and fines and threats and man camps in their little area in their little neighborhood they would be just as upset as as indigenous peoples are as you are in your territory and you know your story when you were talking about it i found myself getting frustrated but happy at the same time oh i'm so glad it worked but then frustrated because it just shows the point. You know, the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls said, this happens because our lives are less valuable, they're less worthy, they're, you know, it it is racial discrimination, it is genocide. And, you know, when you have a Human Rights Watch report, Human Rights Watch comes into BC to talk to Native women and girls about, you know, sexual assaults and physical abuse and all of the people that were doing that to them were the RCMP officers. Of course we don't want RCMP officers in our territories. Of course we don't want man camps where there's higher rates of murder to missing indigenous women and girls. And in your territory, it's it's even worse because you're by the high, you know, the highway of tears and I I just can't imagine, you know, your frustration when things like that happen. It's I know in other parts of the country, it's 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 frustrating and it's really hard to get Canadians to see w- what's happening and just mm-hmm. and, you know, and just how much it can impact them. Now, I understand you have uh, a website. It's the Gidimden Yinta Access website.
1: Yeah. So the access is, or the website is yintaaccess.com. Mm
0: hmm.
1: And we have links to the other um, occupations within the Wet'suwet'en on our website as well. So you can find links to Unistot'en camp uh, website and Laksamisu and then also to our Facebook page to follow along on what's going on. Um, We have a supporter toolkit as well. So we do have protocols around how to support. Um, We've developed those over you know, over time and with, you know, as a reflection of of how long unistoten has been going and how much support they've had and, you know, just troubleshooting some of those issues and and really trying to get the point across that, you know, Wet'suwet'en are fighting this fight and we're doing it according to our governance and we have five clans within the nation and there's three different clans right now that are organizing and occupying their territory we're one, get them then. Unistoten are doing is another. And then like Samisu is another. And so each three camps have their own website and have their own Facebook pages and um, fundraise and you know support have supporters come out in different ways. And so it's really important that we you know, like, obviously we're all working together as a nation, yeah. but when it comes to supporting one of our causes or, um, supporting us as different clans or supporting our actions or our camps or coming out to camp, you know, some people have come out to our camp and they're like, oh, I'm so glad to be at Unistoten. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, you almost made it there, but Unistoten's is <laughs> 20 kilometers down the road. <laughs>
0: Well, that's actually, you know, good to say, because, um, you know, we were having a quick chat before this podcast, and I didn't know all of the differences. And, you know, if if you think about people who want to contribute uh, money for the fundraising effort, or um, take some of the steps in the supporter toolkit, it's actually helpful to know that when you're donating money for Unastoten, it's not necessarily for getting them and... And vice versa. And so um, what I will do is make sure to post a link to your website and your, you know, supporter toolkit and the fundraising part of things. And um, what I like about the information that you have on your website is that it helps people steer clear of any of the potentially fraudulent folks that might be out there just, um, you know, trying to fundraise money but not authorized under your website, for example.
1: That's right. Yes. So it's very important. That's why we have the protocols put in place. And mm-hmm. um, and we encourage, you know, we're all supporting one another as clans. So we mm-hmm. encourage, you know, some people will do a fundraiser and they'll split the money between Unistotin, right. Dan and Luxamisu.
0: Right. You know,
1: and so we encourage that and we always support one another. And, and, and it's only just for, you know, for our own accountability purposes within our yeah. plans that we have to, you know, if, if we see somebody advertising a, a fundraiser for Get em Den and then we never receive the money, then, you know, it causes problems. Or if somebody is intending to raise money for Get em Den and but advertises for Unistoten, then it causes problems because then yeah. they have to be accountable for that money, you know?
0: Yeah, of course, so, and and yeah. we all we all want it to go to the right places, and ultimately it's about you know supporting the Wet'suwet'en Nation, but also there's different needs at different times at each of the um, you know occupied areas and whatever whatever I can do to help promote that, um which is why I'm doing this podcast, and I'll probably write about it and um so, you know show some of these links uh, to folks so that they they have a better understanding of this. and you know i I really want to thank you for coming onto this podcast because i I know you've probably explained this you know situation a hundred times and but Um, The more I can, you know, help spread the word, I think the better. And thank you for everything that you and, you know, all of your clan members are doing to stand up, you know, not only for your clan and your nation and your territory, but what you're doing is actually standing up for the rest of us too across the country, because uh, we know that you make a very personal sacrifice every day. And I know you you do that likely out of a sense of uh, obligation and, and governance for your nation, but we know, you know, as Native activists that... It doesn't come without risks, that there's great risks to your personal freedom, your liberties, interactions with the RCMP, you know, these these extractive industries and companies. And so we, the risks are real. And I think Canadians really need to understand that. Um, I think, you know, you and your other family members are, are really true warriors, you know, not just in spirit, but in practice. And, you know, I, I really... I really admire you and and I don't know if you can see it right now, but what you're doing today and what you do every day inspires and motivates all of these younger warriors who are looking to put an end to colonization and genocide and dispossession of our lands and oppression. And, you know, it's because of the actions you're doing today that these younger warriors will prevail over this struggle. Like we will be successful. We were the first peoples on these territories and we'll be the last. And it's because of people like you, Molly. And, you know, I I just don't know how to thank you enough for taking the time out to come to this podcast.
1: Well, I appreciate everything, you know, that you've said, and I agree with everything that you've said. And, you know, I just have so much hope for, our future. And, um, you know, and it is hard. It is a struggle every day. Mm -hmm. It's not easy, but, um, you know, our ancestors have paved the way for us Mm -hmm. and it wasn't easy for them. And, you know, we just try to make it, try to make it easier for every generation that comes up to win this fight. And I, and I agree, I know that we will. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you for sharing the message and giving me the opportunity to share, you know, our story and our message and um, and we'll keep trying to, you know, keep folks updated as best mm-hmm. we can and to encourage people to follow along and see what's happening and and you know keep your keep your eyes open and your, your ears open for call outs and what, you know, mm-hmm. what we need at critical times. And, yeah. you know, the world is watching our Indigenous people are, are waking up and watching what's happening and, and that makes all the difference in the world to
0: us. Yeah. Well, th- well, thank you for taking the time to come on to this uh, podcast. I hope we can have you back for updates when it's good for you when you're in town, so that we can stay abreast of what's happening. I hope someday to come out there and and support you in person. Um, Thanks to everybody for tuning into this podcast. Um, I hope you were all as inspired by Molly as I was. I'll post a link to their website in my description box. And like I said, also to the uh, supporter toolkit and the fundraising efforts so that you can help spread the word and support them in any way you can. Um, If you like this episode, please consider supporting um, both this podcast and also Uh, Molly and the Wet'suwet'en and the Dem people by sharing the podcast, especially with other Native activists, social justice activists, allies, people who have uh, lots of time, energy, and resources that they can put into helping us defend our territories. We really need everyone's help. Um, In terms of accessing my podcast, I'm hosted on SoundCloud, but I'm also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Um I, I I really hope everyone shares this really thinks about it accesses the website and does what they ca- they can to support uh especially the the three different groups you know occupying and governing their territory Till next time keep living a warrior life and stay alert everybody Walalia.